You are listening to Spacetime Mind. Please be advised that this podcast contains strong language and abstract ideas not suitable for all intelligent life forms. I'm back, baby! I'm back! Space. Somehow, do a Jedi mind meld. In Hello, everybody. Welcome to Space Time Mind. I am the real Pete Mandic, and with me uh, today <laughs> is some imposter, but some what? fake Richard Brown. Your, your oh, no. Richard Brown disguise is terrible. I have a Capra. Capra delu- uh, delusion. <laughs> or you actually have it, I mean. <laughs> uh, which one is Capra? Uh, where you think there are imposters, or is that the yeah? Uh, What's the one where you think you're dead? Is that Cotard's? That might, yeah, that's Cotard's syndrome. Yeah, yeah, that's different. Come on, Cotard syndrome is yeah, where the people say they they think they're they're dead. They think of themselves. Rotting. They say that's rotting. Yeah, delusion. Delusions are interesting. I mean, now we're on a different topic, but um, do I find delusions to be very fascinating? Yeah, they're uh, super cool. Uh, I kind of like the idea. I mean, I'm sort of attracted to the idea that. Uh, there, it's a rational response to weird experience, which I guess is sometimes you know not not is I don't know if that's a controversial or what the status of that view is, but the other right. view is that it's you know they just have irrational beliefs or something like that, but their experience is normal. Yeah, um, I'm not super up on this literature either, but the, I know uh, you know Keith Frankish is. We should have him on someday and talk to him about. Oh, this. I love that guy. Um, but yeah, so like with Kotar's delusion, some people say there's some kind of there's some kind of circuit that for normal people. Um, if we remove that from you, you would be like, "Oh, I don't feel alive. I, yeah, I, I feel something not quite right." And so they, on some level, struggle to make sense of that, and they're and then they come up with this conceptualization. Exactly. Yeah. So that it's a yeah a rational response. So that their ra- cognitive function functions are 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 functioning. Excuse me, their cognition is functioning normally, uh, but there's something phenomenologically about their experience which is out of order and so they come up with a good explanation of that um, as opposed to the alternative view which I, is that uh, no their experience is normal they have the same experience that you would have it's just that they have these really irrationally formed beliefs so I, I think a lot of the debate there focuses on whether their beliefs are rational or whether yeah. people with delusions are irrational I yeah, tend to figure that they're, they're rational but having weird experience it, it, it's strange because you know there's a weird there's a weird recalcitrance. You know, if you thought all they're trying to do is come up with an explanation, then you should be able to talk them out of it and say like, well, let's think about your explanation. According to your explanation, you're dead, even though you're breathing. And don't you grant yeah. that people that are dead don't breathe? So there's this weird kind of like atomicity. This belief is like uh, yeah. not affected Insulated. by their other beliefs. It's yeah, it's it's ins- insulated. And but really it's insulated in a way that's uh, but that's that's um, not connected. There. So it's also insulated from behavior. 
because it's not as though they bury themselves. Yeah, right. It's exactly. It's not as though they're motivated to act in these various ways. Often, often it isn't. Uh, I'm not sure about cotards actually. Be wonder if there are any extreme examples. Because there are some extreme examples of of Capra, you know, where where uh, they decapitate their wife to get the wires out of her neck. Yeah, the she's that, a robot. Yeah, <laughs> that's an extreme example. Yes, um, but that seems that yeah. So is that the is that a case of someone that's really convinced cognitively uh, and just has a weirdly encapsulated belief, or is this someone? I mean, I think they do have a weird belief, but is it on the what is it based on? Is it based on the experience seeming? Um, so if there is a part of the brain which generates um, familiarity, which I, you know, I, I tend to think that's not too far-fetched to think that there is, uh, that, you know, that, and that it fails when, in Alzheimer's cases where people don't recognize things that are familiar to them, and then it, it, it misfires in cases of deja vu where people misattribute familiarity to something that they haven't seen before. So I don't know. I think it's not too far of a stretch to think that there's something in there that, that tagged something as familiar or not familiar, um, and that that's a kind of f f experience that's part of your the f overall phenomenal makeup of your experience. Have you heard of a delusion that I think is called the Corsho delusion? Uh -uh. It's um, one thing that's curious about is that it seems um, specific to Pacific Islanders. Okay. So people that are... Um, I, I, so I don't know if, it, if if there's evidence that it's a genetic thing or if it's more of a cultural thing, but it, but you know um, what's the, from, uh, the what's the, the delusion? The, so the delusion the the name derives from like a, tur a turtle, the word their word for turtle, uh, and, the, okay. and the way a turtle goes into its shell. And the delusion is um, that your penis is going to shrink, uh -huh. and, and further that when your penis shrinks all the way into your body, that you will die. That's I the see. Delusion. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it seems to be specific to this particular group of people, and it's unclear, at least to me, I'm not super up in the literature, whether it's specific to people with a certain gene line or if it's specific to people that have been raised in uh, th this particular culture. Yeah, I never heard of that before. <laughs> I so you were, anyway, you were going to say something about fading or uh, inverted qualia because of your glasses? <laughs> I was. <laughs> you have inverted. Uh, no, I was gonna say that one thing that happens as your eyes get tired is that things go blurry. So that before we were having this conversation, actually, and uh, I was talking with you, um, things were blurry, but I didn't really notice it. Um, I notice, it, and that happens often. I think. Yeah. Um, things kind of get a little bit, but, but at first you don't notice it, but then you do notice it either because, as I was telling you, the story of that I misread a word. It looks a certain way, so I just infer a word, but it's not the right one, so the meaning seems weird to me, so I stop and go, oh, I need my glasses. But there's a second there where you're having the experience and uh, where you're you know, reading or looking at someone's face or something, uh, but the experience is blurred, and so less phenomenologically detailed, like there's less detail, you're representing less detail, at least at the conscious level, but you don't really notice it. You don't really right. notice it, even though you're even in the midst of something like reading or talking to someone. Um, so I was thinking that's an interesting, that's kind of, I think, something I've noticed since having glasses, which I hadn't thought of previously because I've had good eyesight for until recently. <laughs> so uh, if, if, if that's, I mean, so you do become aware of it at, at a t at point. It's not as though you can't become aware of it. I'd wonder to what extent 
that does cast some kind of doubt on the idea that it's uh, a reductio of a certain view that you um, could have qualia that were gradually fading out but not be aware of it. Hmm. So that if you, what you're having is um, less fine-grained, if there's less phenomenal, if you can make sense of the idea of phenomenal grain, um, and I think I can, that we can say, and you know, this is a lot of Ned Block's recent work about this, um, uh, I think does make sense of this, what it means to say that there's a kind of level of detail in our conscious experience. And uh, uh, if that can, I mean, if at one moment you have a really detailed experience, but as you're reading, your eyes are gradually getting tired and the, you're, it's gradually getting blurry, um, and that's your conscious experience is changing, but you don't notice it until a certain, uh, it's happened already to you. Then there's a period in time when you are kind of undergoing a fading qualia um, experience without noticing it. So is it question begging or important that, to, uh, that what's fading is conscious? Like maybe what's fading or getting more blurry is not conscious. Right, so so maybe, uh, so what you're saying is that, well, how would that work? So you have a, a very detailed conscious experience, but a fading first order representation or something like that, as you're reading or, a sentence. Yeah, or the, or the conscious experience is neutral, uh, somewhat neutral about how high de highly detailed it is, or something like that. But yeah, vis-a-vis uh, -vis detail, uh, uh -huh. the high order thing is, is out of step with the first order thing. The first order thing is gradually undergoing a change, but the higher order thing is not updating in in step. Right, and, and so you might think, uh, well, when it does update, that's when you notice that yes. the thing was blurry all along. Yeah, so that's an interesting alternative way of thinking about that kind of blurry um, kind of case. Now, how, so how would you test between them? I mean, I guess, yeah, so w one thing I would say is I don't really care about testing between them <laughs> uh, because the first way of telling the story isn't conceptually incoherent. So even if it were like literally falsified, uh, like if you could show that that's not what happened, I think that conceptually it, it could happen. It could it could have been what was happening, and that already seems to suggest there's um, less of because because the fading qualia argument is supposed to be close to a reductio. It's not exactly a reductio, but it's supposed to be close. It's supposed to give us. Um, it's supposed to give us something that's so wildly unintuitive, so far outside uh, our everyday normal experience that we reject it, <laughs> and we reject we reject that as a um, not as a possibility, but as what's what could be actually happening, what could really be going on around here right now. So that so that's the thing that I think the uh, fading qualia argument trades on, you know, um, that a person who says I have a headache, uh, but as they're saying that the headache is being dimmed down, but they're sort of just totally unaware of the difference. But that's just so unintuitive that we say no, no, no. We have a good access to our conscious experience in general, but. But in this kind of case here, um, it doesn't seem like we do, or it doesn't seem like it's conceptually incoherent to say that we do. Don't. Uh, so that if I say, well, I was undergoing this kind of conscious dimming, but just unaware of it. So if I have a Ned Block type of view, um, where the thing is conscious the whole time, it's just my access to it is different or something. That doesn't seem incoherent to me. And uh, you could give a different theoretical account, but it does. It does. It doesn't undermine the ability of this being a coherent possibility to count against fading qualia intuitions. 
I think I think it appears coherent because the, the person who's who's saying it isn't saying what consciousness is supposed to be. You know, what do you, mean? What do you mean? Well, look, I mean, one, one way of, of of thinking about coherence versus incoherence is in terms of contradiction versus you know non-contradiction. Yeah. In, in order to know whether your theory is contradictory or not, we need to know what the predicates are. We need to know what the propositions are that you're 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 making out of the predicates, and then we can see if we can derive any contradictions or not. Uh huh. If someone introduces this predicate consciousness, and they don't even say. They don't say, is it supposed to be relation? Is it a relational predicate? Is it a one-place predicate? They, they make no commitments whatsoever. Then I'm not going to be able to derive any contradictions from it. Because they I say don't, it's what it's like for you. That's all they say? I mean, at least it, with a higher-order <laughs> thought theory, like once you've got the theory on the ground, they tell yeah. you how to use the word consciousness, and they tell you how that word relates to phrases like, I am aware of my uh, first-order states. And so yeah. it, it just, you, you can derive that it would be a contradiction for there to be conscious states you're unaware of. It would be, it would be contradicted by the transitivity principle, which is built in from, at the beginning, in, into the, the theory. So the higher thought theory has all this structure and all these theoretical commitments, and you could, uh, you, you could derive what, uh, you know, under what conditions would something be a contradiction or not. But the okay. people like Bloch, they introduce... Consciousness. They introduce the word consciousness, and they say things like "wink, wink." Don't you? Doesn't? Don't we all know what this means? Wink, wink. What? Wink, wink, wink. Nudge, nudge. Know what I mean? Consciousness. You know what it's like, and that's all they say. They don't. They don't spell out like yes, it is an intrinsic property. Um, if they were to spell that out, then it would be. Well, he doesn't think it's an intrinsic property since it's like a neural property on his account. And that's a highly relational thing, so it's not. It's not something that's intrinsic. But it's not um, related to any other. Uh, he, he, it's not built in that it's related to any other psychological state, so it's intrinsic in that sense. It's not it's functional. Autonomous. It's not cognitive. It's not intentional. That's what he's committed to, really. Well, when you spell out those commitments, it's unsurprising that um, you. Well, would, that's already saying something. I thought. I mean, so you know. You said you can't say anything about it. Well, we're saying some things about what it isn't. It's not. But now, but now, fading qualia. What is that? The fading qualia. Describing a fading qualia situation, you're describing something that would contradict a higher thought theory, but it would be consistent with this block theory. See, but, but that's see, but I don't think that's wolf. true. I think you can tell fading qualia stories on higher thought theory. You don't think you can? Uh, so how, how are if, they safe from it? If if you're describing a fading qualia story as something where the things that are fading are themselves conscious, that contradicts the transitivity principle that says something is conscious only if you are aware of it. So you can't have conscious things fading without you being aware of them. Uh, you can't have. Maybe I have to add a few more things, but maybe, but hopefully, you get the the, the gist. I think. Uh -huh. I think that if you're committed, to, if you're committed to the fading as being a conscious fading, then transitivity tells you if something is conscious, you're conscious of it. Yeah. So it would seem. But, but would look, so hold on a second. So um, now, now, simmer down there, son. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I've had uh, three cups of coffee. <laughs> okay, but look. So on the one hand. Well, I, I, I'm already seeing like I'm I'm playing every possible move in my mind right now, and and like you know in war games, um, <laughs> at the end, 
I'm the computer in this scene, obviously. But uh, so we have to distinguish what's conceivable from what's possible, maybe, in some sense here. So on, on the one hand, or uh, you're it seems like what you're talking about is conceivable within a given theory or you know, what's entailed from a given theoretical point of view. Right. And so from a certain theoretical point of view, this thing is ruled out. But certainly you don't think it's a necessary tr – I mean, I, maybe you do. I don't know. But it's not a necessary truth, the transitivity principle. Is it a necessary – just what you think? It's that it's necessary that there could be no conscious experience not in any possible sense? Forget about what's actually going on around here. Just like <laughs> – is it impossible in some really strong sense that uh, the transitivity principle be violated? So, I mean, is that what you're saying? Uh, boy, I don't know if I want to get into modal metaphysics again. But we have to to make sense of what's going on, like, because one could say, look, you know, even if you think the transitivity principle is true, then it doesn't seem like Ned Block's theory entails a contradiction within itself. And it, you could say there's a possible a description of a world where that's a true thing about that world. It may not be ours, but it certainly is a way that a world could be. I mean, if we want to use that term, or is that a world where way. transitivity isn't true anymore? Yeah. Oh, I see. Um, but it's, it's so maybe it's impossible in the sense that it can't. So if you assume like, you know, higher order, if you make a lot of assumptions and you assume yeah. the higher order theory, then, yeah, given the way our world is, that world is ruled out. It's like the XYZ world. But in some other sense, it's coherent within itself and therefore could describe, like, you could build a different world. <laughs> and it wouldn't be ours. It would have different things going on in it, but it would be a world where that was the truth. You don't think that's hmm. a coherent way of saying, putting things... No, I think that's fair enough. Let me let me switch gears slightly and and join your team. Yay! This this might help you out. Um, Do so, I need help? <laughs> oh gosh, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to say that. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I, I was earlier saying that the transitivity principle would would just rule out a certain uh, fading of of consciousness. And maybe here's a different way of of carving it up whereby it's consistent. So one yeah. thing that you might say is tra transitive. Transitivity principle is specifically about states, and for any any state that is conscious, uh, you you have to be aware of that state. Now that is logically consistent with there being a succession of states, each of which you're aware of, but they're different from each other without you being aware of the difference. You're yeah. not so this one. That's state, how you explain change blindness, for instance. Uh, yeah, right. So uh, so you've got this. You've got one state that's like phenomenally uh, clear, and the other one is phenomenally blurry. Right. You're aware of each state, but you're not aware that they are different, or or you're not aware of the difference between those states. So right. that that would be a way. And and notice, I'm not talking about modal metaphysics. I don't think um, that would be a way of making some kind of fading, fading consciousness consistent with transitivity. Yeah. But I was saying something else. I was saying even if you accepted transitivity was was in fact what was going on, that there is another sense in which these other theories seem possible or at least conceivable. So maybe maybe they're impossible given the way our world is, but I can wrap my mind around them and they don't tell any contradictions within themselves. And so fading qualia can be told 
Now, you might be making a claim that you're committing yourself to a certain account of the way conscious mental qualities are that allows us to say what would make them fade or not, and maybe that's accurate. I, I, I think what you just said bears on that not being accurate, but someone could try to argue that. Uh, but, but so my point was that um, the fading quality of argument is supposed to be this. These things are possible, but too weird, therefore whatever kind of possibility is involved is not nomological possibility. So that's the structure of the argument, uh, and that's not kind of that. So you're you're endorsing that kind of argument in a sense by saying, um, "Look, on my view, it comes out not to be nomologically possible. But unless you're going to say the higher thought theory is some necessary truth about consciousness, such that there are no no possibilities in which there is not instantiated and there is consciousness, uh, then you get what I'm saying." Yeah. So you need to bring the modal stuff into it. Yeah. Uh, because in order, uh, so there's a lot going on. Nobody, here. Well, part of it has to. I mean, I'm not. I'm not real happy with the way Chalmers uses. Like, if we're focusing on Chalmers's versions of this, the as way as he, I know, he's the only one who's given the fading qualia argument. This, there, I'm a little creeped out about by the way he makes a move from um, plausibility uh -huh. to nomological. Ness, right? So it's, <laughs> so it's it's not plausibility though. It's like no, fundamental. No, he goes, so, so he says it, this is something that is all throughout his uh, his conscious mind book. Yeah, there'll be something that is really weird. It's unintuitive, but it's not contradictory. Right. So what he does is he's he concludes that it is nomologically impossible even though it's logically possible. And to me, that seems really weird. It seems to me that if you want to know what's nomologically versus not nomologically possible, you got to ask a scientist. you got to figure out what the laws are. So this is a kind of science. I don't think we have I mean, armchair access to what's, what's nomological or not. It's an argument to the best explanation. I mean, if, if, you, if you go back to people like Smart and you look at their work, you get some roughly like a similar idea. We have two sets of properties, brain properties and conscious properties. They seem to be highly correlated with each other. We want to know what the relationship is between these two sets of properties. So we got to figure out what the relationship is between them. If you're someone like Chalmers who thinks that the relationship is not identity, um, then there has to be some kind of law-like relation between them. So his theory already posits that there, it, there are, in fact, nat laws, natural laws, laws of the natural world, but not physical laws, but laws of, that are natural. But he, he's, posit he's positing them, these laws. He's yeah. positing these laws in the natural world, not based right. on any scientific experiments he's doing, based on what strikes him as weird and not weird from his armchair. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> Uh, uh, yeah, that's what he's doing. Why is it based Wait, on what's textual weird and not weird? I mean, so do you? I don't know quite how to respond to that. So uh, I don't think it's that, that's a very charitable way of putting what's going on there, since it's more than just that he thinks it's weird or not. So for, first thing, one thing to say is a core commitment of science that tries to understand consciousness is taking first-person reports seriously. So that's a, that's a core commitment of uh, 
what we all are interested in. Um, now, of course, it can be overridden. It can be, and it and sometimes you can give compelling reason to override it. But one thing you want to do is make sure that you have as a, I don't know, if you would call it an axiom, but a basic sort of fundamental principle that there's a tight connection in the normal instance, in the standard case, uh, between people's reports and their conscious experience. And it doesn't have to be, you could say it's kind of a pre-theoretical thing. I'm not sure if it is. I think it's actually more of like, required in order to do science. So if you like science, you have to accept something like this. Uh, otherwise, now of course I'm not saying you, if a, a subject said I see X, that means they do, we, because there are all sorts of other considerations that can come in. But as a kind of default thing, um, uh, it should be the case that unless we have good reasons not to believe it, the subject has fairly good access to what's going on consciously. You don't agree with that? So, I mean, and that makes it more than just, that makes it more than just Chalmers saying, oh, I find this weird. That makes it more like, hmm, here's kind of like a fundamental assumption of our consciousness science, which if this thing were going on, we would be totally diluted. And what would we even be? So it just like makes a mess. It's like a highly skeptical scenario, uh, which would just destroy. It's like assuming, if you assume the world was created five minutes ago, then why are we doing physics? So it's like we can't refute it logically, but it just doesn't seem worth caring about whether the world was created five minutes ago because science. Well, <laughs> so it's, it, it's more along those lines than it is along your, oh, Chalmers thinks it's weird lines. Or at least well, that's take, like, like, take a look at, uh, say, uh, Boltzmann brains, right? Yeah. Um, oh, I thought you were sick of physics. God damn it. <laughs> well, I'm going to hate this. Um, Sean Carroll, uh, yeah. who was uh, on a very excellent episode of Space Timeline. So I heard. He doesn't like, uh, like a lot of physics physicists, he doesn't like Boltzmann brains. Boltzmann brains are entailed by a certain physical theory. The physical theory has a lot of support by it, for it. Uh, it entails the, that there's um, way more Boltzmann brains than so-called normal observers. If there are more Boltzmann brains than normal observers, then it's hard to see how science is even possible. Right. Um, Exactly. And it's like a transcendental premise of doing science that it's got to be possible. But now do, do, what Sean Carroll and I suppose other physicists do is they now try to work out uh, another theory that would r rule out Boltzmann brains. They don't just say, hey, guess what? Since we're already doing science, it must be a law of nature that there are no Boltzmann brains. In well, fact, we, that is we, sort of what he said. He said, you, you could never have good evidence for believing that you're a Boltzmann brain by the standards of... But, that's uh, not, but he's not trying to publish a paper <laughs> that just has that sentence in it. He's trying to like come out with a way of thinking about quantum fluctuations, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, a pretty yeah. elaborate theory that... Uh, um, and, and have that theory rule out Boltzmann brains. But with, the, yeah. with, the, with zombies and stuff, and, and by the way... I think we're you're not right. talking about zombies. We're talking about fading quality. It's all, yeah. They're all part of the same uh, the same ball. I think I think you're right that it isn't just Chalmers, and it's uncharitable for me if I'm saying it's just Chalmers announcing that it's weird. Chalmers yeah. does have a lot of people on his side saying like, "Yeah, that would be really weird. It'd be really weird if our qualia faded without our noticing." Or it would really... all, but you would also have to admit it would put a damper on a lot of science. Yeah, the the sci sciences that have to do. Happening. Yeah, sciences that have to do with like finding out what you're conscious of or not, like you know, lots of ways in which psychophysics is done, in anesthetology like depends on this. Exactly. Uh, but 
what I, what I'm saying is you've got to do something more for something to be a law of nature. I mean, you you've got to do something more to justify a claim that something is a law of nature. It isn't enough that well, we need like the way we've currently been doing science depends on it being a law I mean, of nature. Chalmers isn't God. He's not. He's not Zeus sitting on Mount Olympus, writing laws of nature's into the big book of nature. What he's saying is, here's a way to put the theory together on analogy to the way theories typically progress. By the way, um, if you look at the history of physics, since you brought it up, and now we can talk about physics again. If you look at the history of physics, what you find is that when you find something that you can't explain, you introduce it as a fundamental entity, and then you try to deduce or figure out what the laws are which govern it. Look at the way that fields and magnetism and electromagnetism were introduced into physics. So you, you postulate something, and you then try to discover what the laws are that, that govern it. So uh, that is a but, way that science proceeds. But that's different and, from what, what's going on in the, in the – whenever nomological stuff comes up in fading quality arguments or, yeah. or dancing quality arguments or arguments concerning uh, what Chalmers calls the paradox of phenomenal judgment yeah. in the 96 book. In all those cases, there's an inference from it would be really implausible. Uh -huh. Not contradictory. It's not a full-blown contradiction. Yeah. Nor is it metaphysically impossible, whatever the hell that's supposed to be. It's just yeah. really implausible. And so, and then it seems to me, and maybe I'm not reading it correctly, but it seems to me that he just makes a move then. Once, once it's implausible, it follows that it's a law of nature. No, it follows that it's reasonable happen. to postulate that there is such a law of nature, or to explore the possibility that, of that being a law. Uh, so I think you know, too why, charitable. Why? why that's, those, the way. that's not his words. Well, you know, here's one thing I'll say. So uh, every time people talk about this, they they quote a certain book written in 1996, and then I go. Gee, that's interesting. I read that book. I, I wonder whether many people have actually read it, but I've read it. I think you have, actually. I know you have read it. Uh, but that book was written in 1996, and now it's 2015. So, you know, it, it's, it's, not, it's not, I'm not saying he's changed his mind, but his views have evolved, and he's become more sensitive and alert to various uh, things, and his views very subtle. And so I think that uh, saying that's not his words, and quoting the 1996 book, while not... You know, I don't think he's backing away from very much, although a couple things I think here and there. Um, but anyway, my point is, yes, he's his views have been updated, and so I don't think it's uh, uh, saying, well, you wrote this in 1996, therefore this is the way things are. Well, that's the one I've 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 read uh, the 96 book three times, and um, character um, of consciousness only once. Yeah. My my impression of is that he hasn't really changed about this nomological stuff. He hasn't changed about the nomological stuff. No, no, no. But uh, I didn't say that he had changed his mind. I'm saying that um, attributing him a, something that he attributing to him a view that he wrote in 1996, where he's a bit more bold or brazen about it, maybe where maybe now he would be a bit more subtle about the points. And I think that's been the main change. My impression <laughs> is that, is that uh, he's talked to every or not every, but a wide majority of philosophers and people who think about these issues and he's just aware that the issues are complex in a way that he wasn't aware of then in which so he's aware that there's tons of moves to be made here whereas you know he thought I think in 1996 you get the feeling that uh, he's much more confident in, about the decisiveness of the move now I, I, I'm not sure if that's the case well I, I still am of the impression that like this is I'm, re I'm representing his his current view uh-huh his current now we have a boring you and I have a boring textual disagreement and we have to go back to the text. Anyways, uh, it's time for a break.
Okay, let's take the break. have a, a problem, a, a challenge for you, sir, because um, <clears throat> I want you to rec and I'm sure you're going to be able to assuage my difficulty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm flexing <laughs> but, uh, my muscles. But here's uh, my, my spider sense is tingling. So on the one hand, I think of you as like a pretty staunch defender of functionalism. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I've even seen you say things like you believe that we already have simple artificial minds like surrounding us, like iPhones. Like yeah. you're you're gonna say things like Siri thinks, and you'll yep. probably say things like that. This Super Mario character that's been annoying the crap out of me for the last few days uh, really has a limited kind of subjectivity, maybe consciously. Although you know, conscious experience, I'm not sure how far you want to go. How far would you go, actually? I would go that far. Yeah. Okay. Like so, I mean, so, that uh, there's a way things seem to it. Maybe only in a first order way. Yeah. Maybe it doesn't have uh, a higher. Did you order. actually watch this video? It says some funny things. I tried like to. That. I got. I tried to, and um, it says maybe, if I stomp on Mario, uh, excuse me, if I stomp on Goomba, then it will certainly die. Can you can you take a minute and explain to our listeners what the heck this you're talking about? This emulation support. Yeah, it's a, it's a program called Mario, or not a program. It's a project called Mario Alive. I think is the project of it. A student of mine actually is the first person who alerted me to this. Uh, but basically, it's a group of people, and they've programmed. Um, uh, uh, a Mario character that runs around the game environment and this uh, and you know if it's hungry it'll seek coins quote unquote if it's hungry it'll seek coins um, whereas if it's more curious then it just explores the environment and so it, it does just sort of navigate itself around of course the mechanic of this thing is just a giant lookup tree um, and you can just see it's this large decision branch uh, thing so it's totally um, it, 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 in the sense of AI uh, not um, not like machine learning or anything that's I think extremely interesting. It's just a really really large lookup table, and but it can take voice commands. You can tell it to, what's one of the funny scenes in the video is they have like emotion settings, so you can set it how happy it is, how sad it is, um, and you can command it. So the one of the guys says Mario, be less happy, and then Mario responds by somehow I feel less happy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and then so, you know, the, the idea was that the AI is not supposed to be very interesting. What's supposed to be interesting is that it's trying to model psychological principles, uh, the way that psychological states are connected to behavior. Um, 
And so that's the Mario. It's it's kind of this autonomous thing that runs around this virtual environment. Yeah. Okay. So so you say Mario has he feels happy or sad or to a limited extent is hungry when he's going and looking for coins. Yes. Yes. Okay. So that's what you say. Um, now, on the other hand, uh, and of course you also say uh, that a computational duplicate of your brain suffices for there to be your consciousness, your phenomenal. Like if I duplicated your computer, in a computer, if I duplicated the computational structures that were occurring right now and they were pro uh, being processed just the way they are right now in your actual brain, that in a sense, your point of view would be exactly the same just inside the computer. Right. You, you agree with that, right? Yes. Okay. So now you have that set of views on the one hand, and then on the other hand, uh, so does Chalmers. <laughs> By the way, um, I don't know about Mario, maybe to a more limited extent, but the, at least with the computer and the brain. And the argument that he gives for that conclusion is the fading qualia argument. So it is? It's, yes, <laughs> it is. That's the whole point of the fading and dancing qualia argument is to try to show that as the system transitions from a fully biological system to a fully computational or digital system, that consciousness should stay the same as it goes through that process because all the same functions are being implemented. So it seems to me that there's a bit of a tension in your own view. I mean, I'm not sure why you're so hostile to the to the uh, fading quality argument. It's supposed to be friendly to. Well, uh, you can dislike an argument and still like the, the conclusion of the argument. Yeah, of course. But how? I mean, you wanted to say that the argument's bad. Um, but I'm I'm not sure what allows you to say that, given your commitments in the other camp. Is what I'm saying. Well, I I think that you need something stronger if, uh, if you're gonna make a claim about the the laws of nature. Uh huh. And that that was my beef with the argument. And and maybe I'm mistaken. Uh, maybe maybe a friend of that argument already thinks you have the stronger thing. You have a lot of science on your side. That uh, but why why so but why aren't, so you're committed to the claim that when people say that they feel pain that that's a good reason to think they feel pain. You think that's right, right? Yeah, I like that. Okay, and as your brain is being morphed into a digital version of your brain, you you might be saying I feel pain, and you think that the reason why I should take that at face value is because. I have good reason to think. I mean, what what is the reason I should believe that you really are in pain, or why? Do, I mean, that you believe you're really in pain, if it's not the kind of thing that Chalmers is talking about. Well, one way you might get there is by by way of the higher order thought theory, which uh -huh. which you get to from things like the transitivity principle. Yes. So what it means to be uh, consciously in pain is for it to seem to you like you're in pain. Okay. So, um, but see that there's a question begging move that what it's like for you to the way that it seems for you is to have some functional or computational state. I mean that that so I could if someone could agree with everything you just said and said yeah, but that doesn't show anything about whether the state's functional or computational. Since I typically also believe that, but I think that what that is is a biological thing, not a not a functional thing. You know. You, 
<clears throat> so you think that um, it you can only be in a higher order state if you have some non-functional biological? Yes. Do you have an argument for that? Uh, that is not impossible. <laughs> and that, uh, well, that I didn't pay... say it was impossible. I want to know why it's yeah. Accurate. Well, I Actually, I believe that's actually what's going on. Um, well, part of the reason is that it's not impossible. And the other part of the reason is that there seems to be no good reason to believe the other thing except fate and qualia type arguments, which we seem to both agree. I guess I would diagnose what's different, what's wrong about them in a different way because you seem to buy the argument but just say you don't want to accept the conclusion. No, the, you've got the opposite. You want to accept the conclusion but you just don't buy the But you actually do buy the argument. You buy every premise of the argument except for the one that says, oh, therefore it's reasonable to posit a law which connects. Um, these yeah. two things in a reasonable That's way. My, yeah, maybe I do lo like the argument. Maybe there's a way of <laughs> doing the argument without it. Talk about <laughs> carving things up into the, the nomological worlds versus the metaphysical worlds versus the logical worlds. I mean, sets of worlds. I mean, the basic idea is just that we there's a pre-theoretical commitment to our having a kind of, not infallible access, but a kind of access to our own mental states. I mean, um, and that when you do science, a lot of psychological science relates on people's, relies on people's reports. Um, they don't always have to be accurate, but those two things seem to suggest that there's a kind of uh, foundational thing here that, you know, you might put it as, take a person's first-person report at face value unless there's good reasons to think otherwise. Yeah. And then, if you combine that with the fading qualia argument, it looks like the conclusion is just, yeah, then that doesn't, that can't be what's going on around here because it conflicts with this other thing that seems to be true of the way um, we operate in science and our day-to-day -day lives. Maybe I should stop complaining. I think most of what I care about I'm probably going to get if I just say, okay, I, I, lo I love the fading qualia argument. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, you do love it. What, what I would... I love it. <laughs> yes, see what, sir. So there's two things here that you got to distinguish. So there's the fading qualia argument and the dancing qualia argument. And technically, um, they are supposed to show different things. So, uh, and they don't stand or fall together. That one can stand and the other... So one is more general than the other. Um, so in the... convincing about that. Say what? I need a little convincing about that. Okay, well, let me convince you then, sir. So remember the distinction between the two is in the one case, uh, in the fading qualia argument, what's happening is at each successive stage of, you know, uploading, um, uh, the person's conscious experience is sort of fading, um, fading, fading, fading until it gets to nothing. Whereas in the dancing qualia argument, we're imagining that there's a point at which you remove one biological feature and conscious experience just fade, just completely disappears as opposed to fades out. And then so you imagine installing a switch with that thing and flicking it back and forth so it's there, not there, there, not there. And according to the theory, the person's experience will be, so if they're looking at a, if they're experiencing consciously red, when you're flicking the switch, the red will be there, not there, there, not there. That's the dancing of the qualia, um, whereas the other one is the fading of the qualia. So the dancing of the qualia is supposed to um, is supposed to demonstrate something about the particular content of uh, one's conscious experience. 
that as you're undergoing the uploading process, uh, the exact nature of your conscious experience stays the same. Because if you're having a red experience, the red experience bouncing in and out is just too bizarre. So we say, huh, well, then in that case, it seems reasonable to say that what would happen is that your experience stays exactly the same, red, so that the digital version of you is having uh, an experience with the same phenomenal character, the same qualitative quality, all of that stuff. Whereas the um, fading qualia argument it does, is not supposed to get us to think about the particular content of the conscious experience, um, but rather just there being conscious experience at all. So in the most general sense of having conscious experience, uh, according to Chalmers, that most general sense is just that there's something that it's like for you. So that you know, on this version of the, uh, on the fading qualia argument, the conclusion is supposed to be the computer at the other end, the computational version of you, is conscious in some, there's something that it's like for that thing. Uh, then the dancing qualia argument is supposed to be, oh, and what it's like for you is the same as what it's like for you. So that the, the two come apart. And so, uh, like for instance, recently in the Character of Consciousness book, Chalmers has a footnote on this, and he says, Thinking about change blindness has really got me to wonder about dancing qualia arguments because in change blindness you have the quality there, it's not there, <clears throat> you don't seem to really be aware of it in the in the common instance, <clears throat> and you know so it would be really bizarre, still strange, <clears throat> if that happening right in your focal field of attention. But change blindness has got us at least familiar enough with this happening to say it's not quite as not hardcore or reductio as he used to think it was. Right. But even though you would back off the claim that maybe the exact quality that the computer experiences is the same, the fading qualia argument still establishes that, uh, well, there's some kind of conscious experience. There's something that it's like to be the computer. So that's the way the two could come apart. Um, but in, uh, is, is it true that in both dancing and fading... Um, Creature consciousness is constant. If you mean just that the thing's awake the whole time and alert and responding to stimuli, yes. And um, so, so you you can imagine, you know, like you're uh, chewing cinnamon bubble gum <laughs> while watching uh, uh, Blade Runner, <laughs> and your neurons are being uh, interchanged with these computationally equivalent digital versions. So that, and then the the conclusion is supposed to be in the dancing quality argument that the cinnamon taste of the bubble gum would be the same at the end. It would be, experientially, there'd be no difference. So therefore, consciousness in the computer. And um, the fading quality. Sorry, go ahead. So it's hard so to when describe. I this. When I attack those arguments, I'm attacking them because I want to see whether or not it's reasonable to, to still hold the view that consciousness could be biological. Oh, I see. Um, and that's what that's what's uh, that's what worries me about those things because. If if they're supposed, their their whole point is designed to try to show that um, what matters for consciousness is something functional or computational and not biological. That's like the way Chalmers presents the argument, so that the nomological law thing, that the thing that he's asking is, if you think there's a connection between phenomenal properties and uh, something in the brain. What is what does that law hold between? Does it hold between biological properties of the brain? and phenomenal properties of our experience, or does it hold between functional uh, properties of the brain 
and his whole thought experiment is designed to try to show that actually the laws hold between the functional properties of the brain, the commutational properties, and the phenomenal properties, not the biological ones. So, so when he says there's a law here, that's what he means, that, that there's a law that connects functional organization to phenomenal experience. And what's, what's, your, what's your beef with these arguments? Um, I love these arguments, by the way. I've always <laughs> loved these arguments. I think they're really good arguments. Yeah, I thought you... I know, that's why I was puzzled at first when you were uh, <clears throat> responding to them. But um, what, my beef with them... <clears throat> so first of all, I have several beefs. Uh, here's one beef. Um, change blindness. <laughs> uh, so if you think dancing qualia... So the, if you think that that's enough, if that that's weird enough to get us to say, well, consciousness would be the same in the in the non-biological entity, um, and and I say, yeah, but what about change blindness? It doesn't seem that weird to say that as you move through this process, at w at one point it just disappears and you fail to notice it. That is what happens in change blindness, or at least uh, one way of construing what happens in change blindness. So this would be an extreme version of change blindness. Um, is it? And, and the way it's presented is as a, well, that's a really tough bullet to bite, but and the empirical work makes it seem like it's not actually that tough of a bullet to bite. And that's why I was trying to suggest at the beginning of this, I guess it was this episode, was it, or this session or whatever, I was saying, well, the glasses case where things go blurry, um, but for a moment you don't really notice that they're blurry, and so the one way of glossing that is that you're, what it's like for you, the the quality of your experience, the experiential quality of your experience is gradually getting less detailed, but you don't really notice it. <clears throat> and that's kind of, so what that shows, I thought, uh, is that um, the fading qualia argument, yes, it is a bit weird, but is it really like a reductio? Is it really like super impossible that this could happen in our world? I don't think it is. I think... Um, that the glasses kind of cases suggest that. I also, in fact, think that uh, just thinking about vision in general, you know, there's got to be some lower level grain uh, uh, resolution at which we can see things is a point, you know, um, uh, James Stasiker has made, and I think it's well taken. There's, there's got to be some kind of imperson at some point, uh, so more let, you know, at, at which we're representing things. Um, and we don't seem to notice it. We don't care too much about it. So fading qualia arguments, to me, my, my beef with them is that it, it trades on this kind of pre-theoretical assumption that it would just be too weird, but what we've been finding out empirically is that, well, the things we think are weird are often discovered to be stuff that happens already. But what's the empirical case? So take, take for example, um, uh, Dretzky's spot case. There's a, a, this yeah. a change blindness case where you've got a, a bunch of uh, little dark shapes on a white background, and that's figure one. And figure two yeah. is just like figure one, except there's, there's this one spot that's missing. So yeah. Get, there's like there's 14 dark shapes, uh, and then one of them is missing in the other one. It's only got 13 dark shapes. And you, and right. you show people figure one, you show people figure two, they don't notice that, that there's been any change from figure one to figure two. Exactly. Um, What's the empirical case for saying that you have a conscious experience of spot? Um, don't you? Because don't don't you need to? to the say empirical that? case for saying that you have the conscious experience of a spot. Well, I mean, I don't know. So there's two levels over here. So one is just that 
um, usually your eyes are open and you're looking at the thing, and uh, um, you can examine the thing. And as uh, you know, in a real case of like you know where you're flipping back and forth between two images, one where there's a difference and one where the you know, the thing is there, like the spot. Um, uh, and that can happen when you're just looking at the thing. You're looking back and forth between them, and you might not notice that the spot is different. So, I mean, just as a kind of beginning assumption, you might think that if your eyes are open and you're looking at the thing, that you consciously experience it. But that's <laughs> not that's not empirical <laughs> evidence. That's, it seems that I mean that seems to be say. that seems to be what grounds the possibility of empirical evidence. <laughs> I mean, how do you get empirical evidence if you can't tell, if you don't, you know, think about by looking, you can become conscious. Look, of the folks say a bunch of things, and I love the folk, and I think you got to start somewhere. Yeah, and so let's start, start there. The folk, but that wasn't my question. My my question is, what's the empirical case? Maybe well, I should that's part of the, the scientific case, case is that it's part of our common sense approach that you know what. When a per if a person's sitting there looking at an image, um, you would need some, I think, some pretty some good theoretical reasons to say that they unconsciously uh, perceive it, especially if you ask them, do you see, the, do you see this? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, why, why, isn't, why isn't the empirical reasons that the, the we've discovered that change blindness actually is incredibly common? It well, isn't. Well, so look, I'm just like right now go back and say, guess what? That, that thing that, that Richard Brown just said is, is part of common sense, that's just false. It's just false that uh, you're aware of, of every part um, of your what, what's in front of your face. Even, even when you're allowed to carefully look at all parts of it, you're not consciously aware of all the parts of it. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, if you, you could say lots of stuff, I guess, but, uh, I mean, if so, <laughs> it doesn't seem very convincing to me. Um, if, on the higher order theory, what's going on there is that you're conscious of both of the things. It's just you're not aware or conscious of the fact that that's what's different. So even on that account, you have a conscious experience of all of the things there. I mean, and I think the reason, the pressure, the reason why Dretsky says you consciously experience all of the, the dots and, and uh, uh, Rosenthal says, yes, I know. You just don't consciously experience them as differing. So why does Rosenthal say, yes, I know? It's because I think, you know, it's just kind of a background assumption that if you're looking at something in plain view and there's no tricks, you should, you have a conscious experience of the thing. I mean... In, in some sense, that's ground zero. Uh, uh, I mean, what reason do you have to deny it? I mean, yes, it's a theoretical possibility, but I mean, I'm not getting the the pressure that you seem to feel that somehow I need to like convince you of this. Well, thing. maybe I'm cooking the books, but I do show yeah. change blindness stimuli to my st students. Yeah. And I and I ask them things like, "Were you were you conscious of spot?" And they're like, holy shit, I wasn't. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, that's what I wanted you to say. Thank you very much. Now we're going to well, report back to That's a misleading my... question. I mean, did, did you say, were you conscious of spot but not as the difference? I mean, how do you distinguish? I mean, and, and those would both colloquially be called conscious of spot. So, yeah. So who wins? So, who, who are the folk helping win here? Given that that's folks are not helping anyone, that's why we have to appeal to like sort of basic principles, general principles that connect reports to experience. But when I earlier I asked you what the empirical case was for that's why I said, well, gee, that's a tricky question. But here's one kind of thing we could say, which is that uh, um, 
it's kind of a background assumption that if a person is has a their eyes open and is looking at something that they and, and if you ask them if they see it they say yes they have a conscious experience of it now of course I could cite things you know I, I mean yeah. I, I think it's it's it follows it well what like what else I mean you're commit higher order of thought you're you're committed to this as well you have to uh, if you have a higher order thought so suppose you have a, a, a visual first order representation of the thing that's out there and then you have a higher order thought as look I'm experiencing this visual representation then that thought makes you conscious of everything down there but just not in respect of all its detail I mean that just follows from the way the higher thought functions this is so, uh, so um, I don't know if you could do this for change blindness but I know in uh, motion induced blindness yeah so this is the, the one example of motion induced blindness is you're looking at three yellow dots that seem to be stationary uh, against the black background and then there's also in the background is a bunch of blue crosses that are moving around yeah. and one or more of the yellow dots will just seem like they're disappearing even though in, in reality they're still on the screen and there's there's other kinds of motion induced blindness where you have like uh, instead of the, the yellow dots you've got a, a yellow circle yeah. a ye yellow outline of a circle and a yellow outline of a triangle and they're overlapping each other and the way in which the, the things disappear from consciousness is not in terms of like retinocentric regions you don't get yeah. a region that disappears you'll get yeah. a whole object that disappears even though the objects share regions even though yeah. they're overlapping objects right. so, so people take data like that and they argue like oh right um, whatever whatever accounts for this effect has to be pretty deep in visual processing it has to be at the level of visual processing where things are being parsed into objects uh -huh. so it can't for example just be a retinal effect okay. very few people believe that you, you you get you know binding things into circles and triangles at that that size in the visual field is going to be happening at the retina it has to be happening at a pretty high level of cortical processing. Yeah, you convinced uh, me already. What's the yeah, so, I'll see so why this is not a appealing to the folk. When I ask you for empirical case for something, that's the kind of shit I want. I want like, all right. right. You wanted that no one you just appear you just appeal to a different folk. You said scientists don't believe it's on the retina. Scientists are experts with degrees. <laughs> and big machines so, in their laboratories. So <laughs> okay. So, so there's a case for different, different folk. Something being visually represented uh, even though the subject is not aware of it. Yeah, but all the evidence that we can appeal to is question begging. So you have to think of this as a sort of overall best explanation type of thing. So, you know, if I say, I mean, uh, you're trying to convince me that I should believe that when a person says they have full, have access to the visual scene, that they don't actually consciously experience everything. Um, uh, uh, and, you know, you don't have so what kind of evidence would you present against that claim and all the evidence you would appeal to by the way <laughs> would be the type of evidence which involves people reporting what they're seeing yeah but I want some kick-ass systematic stuff not just like some hunch about what the folks would say I want, I it's want not to, a kick-ass like, system I mean that is the kick-ass systematic thing is that in order to do science this has to be sort of true otherwise what are we doing what the wait a minute in order for in, in order for science for us to be able to do science there has to be a conscious state that's constant throughout a change blindness. 
No, it, it, there has to be. That's because that's general, what we're arguing about. The uh, which and that, that's a conclusion of an argument from a general premise of which that is. If a person is awake, alert, and has full access to the visual scene and says that they see everything there, that's good evidence that they do. I I don't want to argue against that. I will grant. Yeah. You. Well, then that if from that I'll it follows it. the other thing I'm saying. <laughs> What's the other from, thing you're saying? Uh, that in the change by in this case, since they were alert, awake, and had full access to the visual scene, and if they say they see everything, that's good evidence that they did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then change blindness presents good evidence that they didn't. No, it doesn't because oh, you can say. Oh, why uh, aren't they equally good? And now we need something, some third thing to settle. Because in the change blindness, the condition of the previous thing was met. They, they, you can give a person a picture with spot in it and another picture with spot not in it. And you can say, examine these two pictures at your leisure. <laughs> are they, is there something that's different between them? And people will fail to notice the difference. Now, there are other fancier cases where you have to mask things and present them in a certain way. But in this case, you're just looking at a picture. So why shouldn't you be expected to have a conscious experience of the whole thing? That's what you say is going on. There'd have to be really dramatic reason to think otherwise, I think, at least in the spot case. Yeah, in the Spurlink and other cases, that, that's different. The spot, I think, is different because you're just sitting there looking at it. Fair and enough. If a, if a person says, I see it, then, and you show them the other way. You see everything on this thing? Yes, I do. And, of course, in some sense, as they're looking around, they've got to be at some point conscious of spot, but they're not aware that spot is the thing that's different between the two pictures. That's why the spot, that, that kind of higher order accounting works there. But, but, but it's kind of common assumption, I would have thought, that in some sense you are conscious, at least at some point in your visual search, of the thing that is spot. Fair enough. By the way, I need a, a break, an actual yes. real break. Uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, micturate. I don't know what is, that means. Uh, so so uh, <laughs> urination is uh, when urine leaves the kidneys and goes into the bladder. Okay. Most of what people call urination is actually micturation, which is the ejection of urine from the body. Uh-huh. So I'm going to go so micturate. I'm going to eject you from this conversation for saying that. You've got a lot of biology coming up, sir. I'm not going to be asking you about the biology of consciousness when we come back from the break. So I'll be back in, uh, in a minute. Cool. It's our final, final half hour of this episode, okay. of the of, of the episode. Um, so, 
Evan Thompson has a book called, I think it's called Mind in Life, and if I understand it, um, he is not a panpsychist, but he does think that... He's a biocentrist or something. Yeah, I'm not sure what the right cool word for it is, but the the, the mental and the biological are, are coextensive or, or, or something like that. So everything that's alive has a mind, I think. Yeah. Um, that's, you, a, that's his his view. I think that's his view. Um, I didn't actually read the book. Is my problem, uh, but I did buy the book, so he made some money off of me. Um, <laughs> is that your view? Do you think that everything that's alive has consciousness or some other mental properties, or do you draw? Is there a phylogenetic line is somewhere in the evolution of of life on Earth where you get your the first case of consciousness? Um, I mean, as always, my official position is all of the above or none of the above. I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, I don't find it. Well, I don't know. So, um, plants are very complicated things, and they're interesting to learn about. And uh, one thing I think that we now know for sure <laughs> is that they're much more complicated than we thought that they were. And I, I don't know, I look out on the windowsill and see the plant kind of fading away and feel bad for it, and I see the plant thriving, and I feel good for it. So, I, I mean, and then when the winter comes and I see them die, I feel, oh, that's too bad. So I, the, I wouldn't say I attribute consciousness to them, but I think that there's something important about life, um, and that life is, is interesting. Um, and so while I would say, well, personally, I wouldn't think that plants have consciousness, um, I think they can exhibit low-level intentional states. I don't think low-level intentional states are what make consciousness in the sense that matters, the phenomenal sense. But in some sense, like transitive consciousness, maybe some low-level awareness of the environment, response to the environment. Um, Do you know about the like famous uh, dem demonstration of memory in the E. coli bacterium? Yeah. Where you've, you've got the, the, the bacterium... It, it, the way it does chemotaxis is by either run like swimming in a straight line by uh -huh. having its all its cilia all coiled into like a sperm tail, or right. doing a tumble, which makes it change course, and it's all cilia are all like pointing in all directions. It's just doing this kind of random tumble, and right. whether it's doing a straight run versus a tumble um, has to do with whether the concentration that it's detecting is currently higher than it was before or not. Exactly. And you could trigger them moving from the one state, the tumble state, into another uh, as, and demonstrate that that is a function, that, that shift is a function, not of the current stimulus, but instead uh, the relationship between the current stimulus and some past stimulus. And so, yeah. so in some sense of the word memory, they have to have a memory. They have to have some way of remembering what the previous stimulus was and also a way of comparing the previous stimulus to the, the current stimulus. And I I find tempting, quite tempting to say like, aha, there you go, you've satisfied the functional criteria for having certain kinds of, of mental states. You've got sensory perceptual states and also a memory of uh, previous states and also some way of comparing uh, current um, states to remembered states. Yeah. I mean, that's all like... So, so I wouldn't say that. 
I would. I mean, I I could see why you would say if you're a functionalist, I could see why you'd say right. that, especially of your type. I could even see why you would say that just if you like biology in general, because it seems like a lot of the kind of biological stuff is there. But uh, you know, I guess I tend towards the view that. Uh, I mean, because I, I, I would agree the first part of what you said, but I would then say, well, what this shows is that these kinds of intentional functional properties are not part of mind, <laughs> uh, but are precursors to it, necessary conditions, possibly things that can be used to build minds, um, but not themselves mental. But I thought uh, you were attributing it some intentionality to plants. Yeah, that's and that's my same thing. I'd say to plants, I would say that uh, we that one of the things I think that this kind of stuff shows us is that intentionality is not meant and not part of what's mental. Of course, that's doing the modus tollens oh. to your uh, modus ponens there. Oh. So I would say since they could be implemented in systems that aren't mental, this shows that that's while necessary for minds, perhaps not sufficient for minds. Since here's one. Plants have it, but they don't have minds. That's that. That's my temptation. Um, I see. Yeah. Now, so uh, does that? I, I I still would say, even though I'm tempted towards that line, I still think it's an interesting and separate question whether uh, plants um, uh, don't. I wouldn't say rights. I think that would be demeaning to, to to morality in a sense to say plants have rights. But what I would say is, I wonder if there are obligations. <laughs> Um, that we might have towards plants uh, stemming from their low-level intentional properties, um, which aren't don't rise to the level of you know maybe our moral obligations to higher-level animals or other humans, but maybe rise up to some level. Um, uh, to what level, I'm not sure what, but uh, you know I I think that in this. To the extent that something strives towards something, that's a prima facie consideration for getting out of its way. <laughs> um, it can be overridden by lots of stuff, but uh, I, I do think that, you know... Anyway, so I think that's a separate question from whether they're conscious or something. And So I, I would say maybe... The rights maybe, question is separate. It's not rights. I wouldn't say they have rights, but whether, okay. there are, uh, whether we're obligated to treat them or whether there are obligations... Uh, I, for me, I would say one of our primary obligations to avoid the, causing suffering, and I would say suffering is a fairly high-level property, that, and so plants can't suffer. I would probably hazard a guess to say, unless you're a panpsychist or something, or, um, well, I don't know, maybe a, a deep functionalist like you would say that to some extent the plant is suffering if it's not getting the nutrients required as it's like dehydrating or something, what kind of plant suffering. Uh, but I would say that's not a morally significant I mean, it gives you, it gives you some reason to give the plant water. I would say if you have some water to spare, um, but you know, I don't think it's like the same thing as an animal dying of dehydration. The same kind of obligation you'd have to a, a dog on the side of the street or something, so or a person on this even more steep. But I think that to some extent, um, if you're a naturalist like me or lean towards naturalism, that you you expect uh, a con a continuum. Uh, and you don't expect magic in the world, <laughs> right? And so you know, uh, I'm not shocked that intention that there are information tracking systems because tracking information is important. But I don't think that that is what is the essence of being a mind. Um, I think it's sort of an important thing that minds do, but other things do as well, or at least it seems that way to me. I think that's a nice point about uh, re relating the idea of naturalism to the the idea of continua that you don't expect sharp breaks or um, 
you know, I was using a language earlier of quantitative versus qualitative differences. Yeah. Maybe it's a general commitment of naturalism to explain as much as possible in terms of quantitative differences. This gets into the role of math and, and naturalism too. Yeah, exactly. But back right. to the the the, phylog the question of phylogeny. What's the phylogeny of phenomenality? Yeah. And I I know that we're in the realm of betting. But yeah, bet 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 definitely bet. Vertebrates versus invertebrates. You bet. I on think a, probably on there. the line is close to there. Closer closer there than to uh, animals versus. Not that would animals. be my bet. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Is vertebrates versus invertebrates? Yeah. So, as someone who's a vegan and who you know, a lifelong vegetarian for my whole life and vegan for a significant period of time now, a few years, um, uh, I would say, well, what I'm primarily interested in is not contributing to the suffering of animals, and then also a little bit to this other thing I was talking about, because even if they lived a a perfect life, I'd still feel bad for the. I, I don't think it's like perfectly. Like morally okay, even if they have a, a, a pleasurable life. But that's a whole different bag of worms. But anyway, so um, even if though I have that, that kind of view, I think, well, if you look at certain systems like a muscle, for instance, or uh, a clam, maybe, um, that the uh, uh, it's not 100% obvious that even though these things um, respond to the environment, um, in a in a pretty sophisticated way, actually, even though they do that, it's not obvious to me that there's anything that it's like to be a clam. Um, where certain fishes, on the other hand, I think because of the uh, the structure of their brains and their you know nervous systems in general, it's more likely that there's something that it's like to be them. In in the sense that there's something that it's like for them. I mean, yes, uh, uh, you stimulate a muscle in the right way. And it withdraws from a noxious stimuli, so there's, you know, I think that level of intentionality there, but I, I don't think that that's enough to make it, to, to say that um, it has a kind of conscious experience. But what, what guides you when you make these kinds of judgments? Because what guides me are things like the relating what it's like to seemings, appearances, first order uh, yeah. intentionality. So what, so what I think is, in general, my... Would the I have a you know again a kind of strict principle of neutrality with respect to coming down on one side or the other of these debates? I, I tend to think that there are a lot of different ways of approaching these questions. Some which have drawbacks, some which don't. So one kind of view about the philosophy of science that I very much like is a view that starts with uh, a roughly kind of Chalmersian assumptions um, that you get in his constructing the world. That what we want to do is first figure out the primary intentions of these things and then try to figure out uh, which things in the world <laughs> those things pick out. Um, so that's kind of two-stage process. Uh, and I think that you, in our case we start from the inside which is the way uh, we have to start. We start with what it's like to be us um, and we make certain assumptions and then we do some science and we make generalizations and we think you know the problem of other minds is not that interesting. Mostly, why do we think that? Because of the shared neural architecture that we have and because of the role that we now think that neural architecture plays in, in uh, generating experience or being the, neural, the basis of it. So it seems to me that if you sort of start with this and you say, what is this? You find out it is a certain thing. 
Um, and now it's possible that there are other things, other versions of it, and it doesn't always work. Like you know, so this is the way. What is gold? Well, gold is a, is not just something that looks a certain way or has a certain appearance, but we found out it is a certain arrangement of protons and electrons. That's what it is to be gold, and things which present the same appearances but don't have that atomic structure aren't gold. And so, what guides us in our judgments about this is something that science has discovered. Uh, that's what that's what guides me. So roughly, I think what we've just have very good evidence for is that roughly vertebrate systems are have the level of uh, uh, sophistication that looks like it goes with consciousness. But in the case of the gold, doesn't the doesn't it have to be part of the primary intention of gold that it's a scientific kind, and and that's how we're able to find out that it's got an you know, it's fixed by an atomic structure as opposed to, say, superficial appearances? Yes, okay, so something like this stuff. So, like, like, take, for example, chess. You see someone playing the game of chess, and you wonder, yeah. you wonder, you know, what is this, what is this thing or with this game? And right. you're never going to discover that, oh, it's got to have a certain kind of atomic structure in order to be chess. That's right, because chess is not that it kind may, of thing. Uh, yeah, and in terms of the language of primary intentions, it, it's part of the primary intention of uh, the concept of chess that it's not a scientific kind. Is that am I using primary intention correctly? You could be. I mean, it means different things to different people. So I I tend to just uh, think of it in, in a way that's similar to the way I think Chalmers. I mean, I don't think we think of it in the same way, but I follow him at least this far in thinking that it, it's a function. Um, which and you can define functions basically in any way that you want, but it's a function which maps um, sentences or words. You can take your pick onto possible scenarios or ways where worlds could be. So that um, the primary intention just gives you a function which says that if this is true, then the world would be like this or something like that. But don't we have like don't we have some kind of armchair access to primary intentions or something like that, whereby we we know a priori that um, ch chess is not going to turn out to be defined by atomic structure. Um, I don't think so. So I don't think that uh, uh, if you if you think about Aristotle thinking about water, he could understand the primary intention of water perfectly fine. That it's you know clear, odorless, liquid, blah blah blah. He could still think it was a simple substance that didn't have parts. Because it has to do with what the primary intention actually, what what it actually picks out. So, um, in our world, it, it, there's a different thing called the secondary intention, which returns a value at the actual world for the thing that you're interested in. It turns out to be H2O, not this other thing. But still, the primary intention of water is what you would use to determine whether or not, uh, you know, water. There's watery stuff at Twin Earth. Well, how do you know that? Because you're sort of using something that picks out something. But look, when, <laughs> irrespective when we, of its chemical. When we when we place. first started, uh, you know, the the whole history of using the word chess, we've never ever used it to to describe anything made out of plutonium. Yeah. But then I wonder, like, could there be a chess set made out of plutonium? Oh yeah, totally. And we don't we're able to figure out a priori that there could be. Yeah. But, but there couldn't be a sample of water that's made out of plutonium. Um, and there couldn't be a sample of what? Well, yeah, not so, at our, not at. But see, there could. I, I mean, 
So you have to distinguish between. So I would say you have to distinguish between the way the world could have turned out to be. So the way, given the way that it is, which ways it could have evolved, versus like which ways could there be a world. So yeah, I think yes, in one sense, you, water could be plutonium. <laughs> a weird world, different laws. I guess but, what I'm, I mean, just to go meta for a second, what I'm trying to do here is in the language of primary intentions. Yeah. I, I want to know why you think, or how one would defend the view, or even state the view, that um, psychological predicates are going to be more like, uh, more like water, and less like chess. Because the functionalist uh -huh. says it's more like chess, and I'm, I'm curious how you would conduct uh, the debate between us in terms of this lingo of of primary intentions. How you conduct it in Chalmers' ease. Um, well, we would we sort of have been doing it. So uh, I think part of the idea is that the way that you test primary intentions is by looking at the way you judge sentences to be true or not in various situations. <laughs> so if you take this, you know, claims about the person's consciousness as they're going through swapping out of their biological stuff with with computational stuff. And then we're asked to make judgments about whether they still have the same conscious experience or different conscious experience. That's a way of getting at what the primary intention of, of those types of things are because it's telling us in these situations, what does this return, true or false, true or false. Um, and so, you know, uh, the way that you would do this is, and so that's what he thinks is going, and at least the way I interpret him, that's what he thinks is going on in a lot of the cases of pure a priori um, argument like the Gettier problem and those kinds of things where people are do testing cases and they're testing their intuitions against cases at least in some sense or saying what they would say about these cases and that's the way that you hone what the primary intention of the thing is by saying whether it returned different results and it can differ between persons I mean he's open to that uh, so that you know you may have different judgments about whether the sentences are true in these possible cases that's a way of mapping out the function um, that you're using to uh, map this sentence to possible scenarios. So if Chalmers were, were here, he would say to you, uh, you the biocentrist, bio that, yeah. that you are just mistaken about what the primary intention of... No, he might say we have different primary intentions. I think, I think that he does say, not to me in particular, but he does say in general, that uh, this might be one of the problems, uh, what the primary intention is, and and so forth, so and so on. So, but he would say that um, that if you give a different judgment about that case, that you are operating with a different primary, yeah, a different uh, conception of consciousness or primary intention of it. Um, but but that the basic thing he would say against a biologist or uh, biologicalist like me is that um, you're committed to saying that consciousness disappears at some point. And that that just seems wildly implausible and at odds with the way we do consciousness research and science. And then I would respond, yeah, but change my ness and, <laughs> and spurling results. So it's not that weird and there are good reasons to, um, to reject those kinds of things. But look again, I mean, I'm not really fully 100% committed to this idea. I, my commitment is just to explore the possibility of it. Now, of course, and this is just one way of doing it. If you were someone like Ned Block, and Ned obviously has a biological approach as well, a different, right. you know, the other kind. Um, and what he says is he just, uh, you, uh, you get the same kind of parity of moves here. 
uh, that you get in the zombie cases, he just says that, uh, yes, I can imagine this happening, but it's not really possible. So that uh, conceivability is not a guide to what really could be true about our world. So, you know, one time I asked him about this, I said, hey, Ned, what's the problem with the fading and dancing quality argument? And he responded to me by saying, oh, that their epistemological problems are not our problems. <laughs> the problems of these fictional beings that you're conceiving of don't have anything to do with the real ep epistemological standards or relationships of uh, real human beings. And he compared it to skepticism about the world being created five minutes ago. Yeah, he says, yeah, it's conceivable that the world was created five minutes ago, but you know, is it really possible? Maybe in some sense, but who really cares? It's a skeptical scenario. So someone who actually feels moved by the problem of, of skepticism is going to see that as really lame question begging. Yeah. Does any is anyone really moved by the problem of skepticism? If you I you should be if you care about knowledge, right? But who cares about knowledge? knowledge? I mean look don't you do you know? I mean my students seem to care. But you have to say it in that sense. I mean, everyday ordinary what you called vanilla knowledge once upon a time, a long time ago. Ordinary vanilla knowledge claims we know they're true. There's no problem about most like most of the even if I'm in the matrix, most of the things I believe are still true. I mean I, I I'm I, yeah. I feel confident about that, so who cares? But uh, I guess someone, I guess, I don't know, do we have to be respectful for people that say, but do you know, and how do you know? Well, I would say that, you know, there's a very long tradition in philosophy, going back to at least Plato, that assigns knowledge the requirement of certainty. Um, and if that's your standard, that in order to have knowledge, you must you must be absolutely certain, which means rule out all rational doubt, <laughs> which is the way Descartes defines certainty, so uh, that there's, you know, you rule it out as completely unable to be happening, then yeah, I think you're going to have a problem with skepticism. Um, I think if you realize that uh, while logically possible, um, there's kind of a general argument to the best explanation that we should ignore it and go on with our lives. <laughs> so, who cares? That's what I say about the problem of skepticism is, yeah, I can't refute it, but does it really matter? I mean... But you seem reluctant, more reluctant than I do to believe things. You seem very cautious. And my attitude is like, if I find out I'm wrong, I'll change my mind later. Yeah. Where you, you seem a little more, um, is it Peronian skepticism or... I wouldn't say Peronian skepticism. I'll, I've, yeah, uh, but what, what, there's certain people that are really, they're really reluctant to assign belief to things, and uh, don't they have a name? Don't they have an ism? There may be, you know. I don't know. I just don't. I don't see what the good reason for saying. I mean, I see arguments on both sides, and I just don't see any good reason to say that I uh, that that I should pick one or the other. They both seem reasonable. Many views seem reasonable to me, um, so I don't know if it's a kind of skepticism as opposed to a uh, kind of sensitivity to the force of the arguments on both sides. Um, I, you know, the reason I'm friendly to higher thought theory is because I kind of see how it could be true. I feel the same way about other theories too. I could kind of see how they could be true. I, I could put myself in the position of finding out that that was the way things were. That's why I'm cautious to say that I think things are this way or that way because I can really sort of just imagine or picture or conceive that, oh, and then we find out it was like this all along. Like, uh -huh. 
but I feel that way about the other views as well, and I just don't know why I'm supposed to not discard that that feeling. So what would I mean? What what hangs on picking one? I mean, I don't have my, you know, I like to examine the views and see what follows from what. But do we? Is there is there anything more than posturing involved in saying I know that this is true? <laughs> That's a way of you know. Yeah, I guess I just I don't know about announcing that I know something, but yeah, I do like. Uh, I think it would be really weird if things were exactly 50-50. It's really hard to get something in perfect balance. Things are always uh, going to lean in, in some way or the other. And so whenever I assess a bunch of arguments... 50-50, though. Well, let's say it's 51-49. What about 70-30? Whatever. Uh, if, if, uh, if something is leaning in a particular direction, I just like say, okay, I'm jumping on... I'm yeah, but you on. should have some meta sensitivity to the fact that maybe you're not the most reliable indicator. Of... I, like, I like believing things, and I will believe the thing. That <laughs> I like believing things. And if the evidence comes out a different way tomorrow, then I'll be like, oh, guess what? I, I believe in God and Santa Claus now. <laughs> okay. And people are like, but you spent a whole career saying that you're an atheist. I'm like, I don't care. I don't mind admitting I was wrong. I'm... Okay. <laughs> so why not start at the beginning and admit you might be wrong now? Uh, <laughs> would that make you happy? I'm just wondering, like, as a motivate, if you already have recognized that you're going to get there, why not just start there? What I'm saying right now is wrong. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's raining and I don't believe it. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, but I also be, I think that um, part of this is related to the dogmatism paradox, which we've talked about before, but I still yeah. think is important. I think that in general, uh, it's also, I think, deeply related to stuff that Socrates talked about, which I think is important. I think that if you think you know the answer, you're not likely to look around at, at the other, at the countervailing evidence with, uh, with, with a fair-minded approach, and that if you assume that something is true um, long enough, it will just, you know, become entrenched. It will see. It will just become. It will seem more and more true because you just get more and more automatic at a at sort of thinking in those terms. And so, if that's what shapes the way the world looks to you, then you just become more and more entrenched and resistant to to other approaches uh, without you even really realizing it or being aware of it. Evidence may be presented to you that you discount, which you might have taken more seriously if you weren't also automatic in approaching the problem from certain. That's a, that's a fair point. Here's a counterpoint. Okay. The, the group the group will will make make sure a balance is uh, in place, and the group yeah. is is helped by the individual members picking a team and really running with it. So you should <laughs> you should pick a thing, and is, try as hard as you can. To shore it up against all <laughs> all attacks, and, um, and that will best serve the group. And and the, and the yeah, group, we got division of labor. We got different people trying out different projects. It's the, interesting. The collective pursuit of truth is best served by individuals just going to the mat, like saying, "Like, yeah, I'm a physicalist <laughs> till I die." So the group is just best served by. Mud wrestling between physical. Yeah, but if the individuals are fighting with themselves, they're like, "Well, this could yeah. seems good, but this seems good." But in public, they're very decisive. They're all or none. They're like neurons. <laughs> they fire. Yeah, we need the don't. neurons to the neurons to be decisive, and then the whole group can be. It's interesting. Um, and by the way, we we got our last two minutes here. Okay, well then I'll end on this, or I'll I'll end my part on this. It conflicts, I think, with 
what I would have thought it was a deeply held belief about philosophy, from my point of view, what the point of philosophy is, what the role of it is in our lives, um, which I think, looking back to Socrates and the uh, Greeks in general, but you know, in particular, ancient philosophy in general, um, the goal of it is to try to know for yourself what you believe, why you believe it, and whether you ought to believe it. So that examining one's own beliefs and assessing whether or not they're well held or poorly held or what is sort of the point. Russell echoes this later, you know, in a different way. But people have at various points said that the idea is coming to know oneself in a deeper way. Um, and to really just try to figure out what you ought to believe, um, uh, what the evidence really supports. And your way of casting it makes it sound like that the antithesis of, of really seeking knowledge because the group, it will, uh, it, what matters more is not the individual knowing itself, but the group dynamics playing out at a role beyond the individual. And I guess I would resist that. Um, not in, I'm not against group pursuits, but in general I would say that the goal of, uh, primary goal of philosophy should be this kind of self-knowledge. Hmm. You really uh, fool yourself. <laughs> full of something, exactly. No, so but be, I think that I think each person should be full of themselves in this way. Yeah. Uh, um, I don't know if I have a meta view, but uh, just as an honest piece of biography, the main thing that motivates me is curiosity. I'm just like right. really, really curious, and I do like to, I do like to try out different things maybe in private um, but I, I you know I mean if you listen but so, to the but podcast, you're recommending that publicly you should advocate against curiosity and just like be satisfied with this and don't if curiosity is aroused when you when something well, doesn't fit what I was flirting, be, what I was oh uh -oh. just the idea um, that you should pick a thing and stick with it. But if people listen to this podcast, I think they know that I don't actually follow that advice. That you and I both take Yeah, you converted to higher order theory, then the panpsychism, then back, all within the last couple yeah, of Yeah, in one episode, you <laughs> loved you loved Pythagoreanism, and in another episode, you were... No, that's consistent with what I'm saying, though. What I'm saying is that uh, I see arguments on a lot of the sides of different fences, and therefore, right. while I have hunches and I make bets and I believe things more or less, um, I, I'm very against ruling things out and saying I know this is true or I believe this very strongly. So I think that's entirely consistent with like what everything I've been saying. Well, I, I don't think I'm that much different than you, except yeah. I have more, more confidence that the group will figure it out. And so there's no harm done if, right. I, if I pick My real view is that all philosophy right will be solved by the singularity. So once we have... That is also my view. Smarter, smarter thinkers around get to the bottom of some of this. <laughs> that's also my view. Maybe that's exactly. To end on the singularity will save us. Wow. All right, sir. All right. Well, okay. I'll see you. Uh, I'll see you in cyberspace. Awesome. All right. Take care. How do you hang this up now? Just push all the buttons.
Bye.